time is ticking, whether it is policymakers in the public sector or decision makers in the private sector, urgent action has never been more critical. The latest report by the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is a cold red for humanity. Sadly, the repeatedly ignored warnings by scientists over the past decades have now become reality. As a global real estate company headquartered in Singapore, CDL is glad to have started our sustainability journey over two decades ago. Since uh, 1995, we have embodied our ethos of conserving as we construct, and we believe that businesses can play a key role to building a sustainable future. Green buildings have been a top priority in the way we design, build, and manage our properties. Over the years, our sustainability strategy aims to achieve three deliverables, decarbonization, digitalization and innovation, as well as the disclosure of ESG performance. This is in line with our mission to provide green, safe and healthy spaces for building users. This long-standing commitment has paved the way for the transformation of CDL's operations towards a low carbon future. In February this year, CDL became the first real estate developer in Singapore and the first real estate conglomerate in Southeast Asia to sign on to this World Green Building Council's Net Zero Carbon Buildings Commitment. Going forward, CDL will further accelerate our climate action to ensure that our business is not only doing good for all stakeholders and the environment today, but also contributing to a more resilient world where generations to come will enjoy, prosper, and live with good health. The development of climate change solutions is an ongoing and collective effort across multiple levels and there are many opportunities for Singapore to be engaged actively. At the institution level, Republic Polytechnic's efforts are aligned with the national focus on sustainable development to mitigate all the risks and threats brought about by climate change. Our campus has been recertified as a Green Mark Platinum Award in 2021 and there are various efforts to reduce energy consumption in our campus through the retrofitting of our chiller plant conversion of AC fans to electronically commuted fans, the installation of solar panels in nine building rooftops, as well as the changing of lighting type to LED. In supporting the mass rollout of electric vehicles in Singapore, we have also worked closely with various industry partners to develop training programs to support the manpower and skills requirements, as well as the charging infrastructure. Over at RP, we roll out on-campus initiatives to encourage all our staff and students to play their part through recycling of used items and reduction in energy and water consumption. These efforts are championed by our students from the Conservation Interest Group to positively influence our students and staff. Climate change is affecting everybody because it is not just a national issue but a global challenge. Everyone has a role to play and we can all start by adopting a positive mindset that we can do our part, regardless of how big or small the effort is. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. Our final session is about to begin. May I request everyone to settle in, please? We will now show you a video on S. Rajaratnam's vision of Singapore as a global city. Ms. Irene Ng, the biographer of S. Rajaratnam, was our advisor and provided historical perspective of the concept of Singapore as a global city.
the early 1970s, years of crisis. Really, it was a mass unemployment. When the British decided to pull out, because the British Army is a big employer here, bases, Air Force, Navy over here, and Singapore, besides trade, was British. Singapore was headquarters, British Far East. So that part has gone. And also, by 1960 and 70, uh, Malaysia was trying to develop more economy. Right? Indonesia owned. Add to that the fact that our neighbours, Malaysia and Indonesia, at that time, it was so immediately post, the early post-separation years. And you could say also the early post-confrontation uh, years. Relationships were different and we were trying to get together and we didn't work together as well as we work together today. In February 1972, there was no Changi Airport, no Singapore Airlines. Singapore's first container terminal in Tanjung Baga had just opened. People looked around and saw a third world city with third world problems, only more acute. None of our founding fathers believed that Singapore could be independent. When they spoke about the forces of history, what they meant was also the forces of geography. It was not conceivable for them that a city-state, that a city could exist by itself as a nation. We were still floundering around for a narrative. Out of this period came the voice of a visionary, Mr. S. Rajaratnam, Singapore's founding foreign minister. Singapore is transforming itself into a new kind of city, what I call the global city. It was actually a eureka moment. When he announced this, my generation, I myself, read it and said, ha-ha, that is Singapore. That's, how, that's why it's important. That's why I, I, I say that it is crucial that a people understand, can tell a story about themselves. Defying the evidence before his eyes, Rajaratnam evoked a vision of the small island linked to the global networks of production, finance, telecommunications, and technology. He predicted that by plugging into the global network, Singapore would be propelled into the ranks of the most advanced industrial and technological societies within 20 to 30 years. In the 70s, the idea was ahead of its time. Mr. Rajaratnam, took on this concept of the global city, where if Singapore, as he said, we have lost our hinterland, Singapore does not have a hinterland, but the world is our hinterland. We leapfrog the region and connect with the world. And I think that was behind that idea of the global city. You trade with everybody else. You work with everybody else. You invite everybody else internationally to come. You don't get too fixated on your immediate neighbourhood. And I think that has been an extremely uh, important, decisive strategic move for Singapore. And for Singapore, it has been our fortune to grasp that idea. Well, Mr. Rajaram was right because Singapore was, was basically an entry-port city, trading city of this region. We are the importer and exporter of goods and services from our, our neighbours, spices, rubber, tin. And the key was for Singapore to get out of the region 
big with multinationals, uh, Americans, Europeans, and Japanese. They use Singapore to produce uh, at the own 100%. Singapore was one of the few countries that allowed 100% for multinational because they gave us jobs, they gave us technology, they gave us, gave us market to the world. So that's very important. So from that point of view, Singapore became a global city through industrialization. While an important element of Rajaratnam's global vision speech involved welcoming the MNCs, it was more than about that. It also presaged the development of a knowledge society and the expansion of sophisticated communications technology. He went so far as to predict that with the advances in technology, knowledge would become an increasingly important element contributing to economic growth. On all counts, Mr. Rajaratnam has been proven right. Within one generation, Singapore's global approach catapulted it from an ordinary third world city into a global first world city. It was not like 9th August separation, 10th August we decided to become a global city. It didn't happen that way. It was a slowly dawning recognition. A slowly dawning recognition that grew. And when you say Singapore city-state, I mean, what does that mean? When you say Singapore is a global city, and this is how we will function, by linking up with other global cities in a network. It took a vision, but as Rajaratnam himself said, being future-oriented and finding the correct solutions would not be enough to steer Singapore safely through the dangers. The decisive factor, he emphasised, is the determination and courage to act upon them. Without this will to action, knowledge and perception about the future are useless. Tackling the tensions and dilemmas that came with globalisation posed the biggest challenges. The political, social and cultural problems, I believe, be far more difficult to tackle, far more difficult to solve. These may be the Achilles heel of the emerging global cities. Laying the economic infrastructure of the global city may turn out to be the easiest of the many tasks involved in creating such a city. But the political, social, and cultural adjustments such a city would require of each of us to enable men to live happy and useful lives in them may demand a measure of courage, imagination, and intelligence which may or may not be beyond the capacity of its citizens. It was an important message in an era of nationalistic, racial and protectionist politics around the world. His became a voice that mattered during his time and beyond. We will now have in this final session of Singapore Perspectives 2022, a dialogue with our guest of honour, Mr. Desmond Lee. His Minister for National Development and Minister in Charge of Social Services Integration. He co-chairs the Singapore Together Movement, the Emerging Stronger Task Force, the Singapore Tianjin Economic and Trade Council, and the Sino-Singapore Tianjin Eco-City Joint Working Committee. He has held the positions of Minister for Social and Family Development, Second Minister in the Ministry of National Development, Second Minister for Home Affairs, and Minister in the Prime Minister's Office. He will first make his opening remarks which will then be followed by a moderated Q&A session by Professor Tan Tai-yong, President and Professor of Humanities History at Yale and U.S. College. 
May I now invite Minister Desmond Lee on stage, please. Testing. Good afternoon, Mr. Janadas Devan, Director of IPS, Professor Tan Taiyong, President, NUS Yale College, Excellencies, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, it is my privilege and pleasure to be here this afternoon with all of you. Uh, and just glancing around the room, looking at the many august uh, members of the audience from academia to research to the diplomatic corps, the government, and the private sector. Uh, it's a humbling experience to be able to speak up here and just to offer some thoughts. Even tougher to come on the heels of a video uh, chronicling a very prescient and important speech by one of our giants, Mr. Ezra Jaratnam. And so allow me to offer some very humble thoughts, and I look forward to learning from you and exchanging ideas with you on the topic of cities. Now, as you've seen throughout this conference, cities mean different things to different people. There have been rich discussions and conversations about many aspects of our city, how our city can be more inclusive, livable, and green, how our city can remain connected internally and externally, physically, digitally, and how people in our city interact and get along with one another. What these discussions show is that our city reflects the diversity of our society. We're diverse not just in race and religion, but increasingly in our ideas and perspectives. The challenge for us has always been how to balance these different priorities and ambitions to give them space to flourish within our small island city-state. For among the major cities, we remain one of the smallest in the world, about a third the size of Tokyo and half the size of London, depending on how much of a metropolis you decide to designate. Not only are we a small city, we are both a city and a country, one of just three modern city-states worldwide, possibly the only one responsible for defence, foreign affairs and many other things that you'd associate with a full sovereign state. Which means, unlike other cities, we must fit everything that a sovereign country needs, like air connectivity through airports, sea connectivity through our seaports, defence through our military bases and air bases, our reservoirs for water, resilience, incineration plants, and, all of, and a lot more well within our city limits when cities in larger countries have the opportunity to place these necessary essentials far beyond the city limits. So as we strive to bring all the elements of our nation and society together in our small city-state, we will always face intensely difficult trade-offs. And the choices that we make will define the society that we become. In this sense, city planning for us is not just a technical, professional or infrastructural process, it is a social-political process. It's about nurturing our society and becoming the nation 
that we aspire to be. In his keynote address at the start of this conference, my colleague, Minister Ong Yi Kang, looked back at some of the great cities of the past, as well as cities in present day, and what we can learn from them. So today, to round off the conference, I'd like to look forward to our city of the future, to imagine what Singapore could become in the decades ahead, and what we'll need to do to get there together. Let me start by discussing some major trends coming our way and how we are preparing for them. Now, one big challenge is climate change. As a low-lying island nation, Singapore is particularly vulnerable to the effects of climate change, such as rising sea levels and more extreme weather. So we'll need to take steps to protect our city and our people by raising the land literally that our buildings are built on, enhancing our drainage system, constructing seawalls and polders as defences to keep the sea out in future. And all this could cost some $100 billion or more over the next 50 or 100 years, a major, major investment, an act of faith. Beyond adapting our city for climate change, we're also doing our part to mitigate it. We launched the Green Plan last year. It has five pillars, which will collectively remake almost every aspect of our lives, how we live, how we work, how we get around. And if we work hard at it, pull people together, unite them, we can thoroughly transform Singapore into a truly sustainable city of the future. And just here are some of the things we're working on. We are growing Singapore into a city in nature, weaving nature more intensively into our city in many ways, actively restoring and enhancing our core biodiversity areas, which we've conserved right in the heart of our city, setting aside more nature parks, which serve to buffer our core habitats, naturalizing our parks, waterways, and streetside greenery to help wildlife traverse our city, planting one million more trees within this decade. And by 2030, we want every household to live within a 10-minute walk from a park. We are making our urban infrastructure a lot more sustainable too, and we must. We are making our buildings much more energy efficient, while using more sustainable construction material and practices. For example, we've raised our minimum energy performance requirements and refreshed our Green Mark scheme. In fact, under our latest Green Building Master Plan, we want to green 80% of our buildings by the end of this decade, ensure that 80% of new buildings from 2030 are super low energy buildings, and have our best-in-class buildings reach 80% energy efficiency levels from 2005 levels by the end of this decade. We call these targets 80-80-80 in 2030, focusing the minds of industry and Singaporeans on how much more work we need to do to make our city green. And we are bringing solar panels, smart lighting, heat-reflecting paint and other technologies into our HDB towns and heartlands to make them much greener too. We are pushing hard on our transport system as well. We are phasing out all internal combustion engine vehicles by 2040, which is less than 20 years from now. But we'll need to invest in infrastructure to support this major transition, including an extensive network of charging points for electric vehicles all across our island. And we continue to improve our public transport network by building more MRT stations and lines, rolling out cleaner buses, 
and we're expanding our cycling path network to around 1,300 kilometers by 2030. We're also greening our power grid, and that's important, by installing solar panels in all sorts of places, on the roofs of HDB blocks, floating on reservoirs, and in the future, we'll strive to develop regional power grids and import low-carbon electricity from abroad. At the same time, we need more than just hardware or infrastructure improvements. Sustainability is not just about hardware. We need the software or the hardware, too, by making sustainability a key part of how we live, part of our DNA, every single day. Cut down energy use, reduce our waste, recycle a lot more, bring sustainability into the heart of our schools through enhanced curricula and programs, and make our campuses greener, and create green jobs and a greener economy in areas like carbon emissions measurement or verification, energy-efficient technology, and green financing. We are supporting companies to build capabilities and do research in sustainability solutions. And our carbon tax seeks to reduce the carbon footprint across our economy. So the Green Plan really is a whole-of-nation effort. It's ambitious, it's comprehensive. We continue to push further, and we'll need everyone on board to make it a reality. But besides climate change, which is top of mind around the world, another major challenge is to continue fostering a more inclusive and united society here in our city-state. Societies all around the world are becoming more polarized along race, religion, socioeconomic status, or political ideology. This is exacerbated by the online space, where it is much easier to interact only with those who agree with us and shun others who do not. But as Professor Carlo Ratti of MIT observed in an earlier panel, physical spaces can be an antidote to this, because in physical spaces, we have to meet and adapt and adjust and accommodate those around us, no matter how different they are. In Singapore, we proactively plan our city to create opportunities for different groups to interact in and around where they live. We have policies like the Ethnic Integration Policy, which seeks to ensure a representative mix of races in our HDB artlands. We also encourage interaction among people of different socioeconomic backgrounds. We recently launched a new model for public housing in prime locations, a new product line, so that these areas are accessible to more Singaporeans and not only the well-to-do. Bearing in mind how, over time, different parts of our city rise and fall in value, we want to make sure that our public housing strategy injects public housing and Singaporeans of all walks of life into these areas too. We will introduce public rental housing for lower-income households in these prime locations too. In fact, we're integrating public rental flats with home ownership flats across our island. In some cases, even within the same block. And if you see the uh, slide in front of you with the Rocho prime location housing flats, they are rental flats on every floor, together with the Seoul flats. We pair these policies with programs and activities to encourage community bonding. And for lower income households in public rental housing, Important social initiatives like Comlink provide holistic and coordinated support for those living in rental flats in healthcare, education, 
and many other areas. So not just housing for lower income, but housing with social support coming along with it. And HDB's dedicated home ownership support team will also guide them in buying their own home when they're ready to do so. In these ways, we actively support social integration and mobility and don't seek to live it to chance. Being inclusive also means designing our city to meet the needs of different groups, especially those who might need more support. My colleague, Mr. Lim Hui, CEO of URA, shared on this too in an earlier session. We've also been putting efforts to better support persons with disabilities in our city through regulations like BCA's Accessibility Code, as well as various agencies' efforts to design and install accessibility infrastructure, we've made many parts of our city more barrier-free. But from the everyday experience of differently-abled Singaporeans, gaps still exist, which we can do more to address. And so we've set up the Accessible City Network, which brings together the public, the private, and the people sector to explore close-up ways to enhance the accessibility of our city at the ground level, guided by the lived realities of persons with disabilities, by improving wayfinding tools, for instance, or by identifying overlooked opportunities for more barrier-free features. So not just leaving it to regulations and compliance, but actually bringing communities together, building owners, public agencies, corporates, NGOs, disability groups, individuals who live work in those areas to identify the micro level on the ground level, what the problems are, fix them, fix them. We've started pilots in the CBD as well as in some heartland neighbourhoods. So it's not just about the issue, it's about the way in which we seek to address these issues on the ground. It's different. And this is just one initiative from our third enabling master plan. We refresh this master plan every five years to lay out how we can better empower persons with disabilities in various aspects of their lives here in our city-state. These are just some of the ways in which we plan and build our city for a more inclusive society. I've talked about climate change, I've talked about accessibility and inclusiveness. Next, I'm going to talk about population aging, which is another major trend we are facing. Our proportion of citizens above the age of 65 increased from around 1 in 10 a decade ago to around 1 in 6 today. And this should rise to almost 1 in 4 by the end of this decade. We have a responsibility to take good care of our seniors who have contributed so much to our nation's progress. So we're making steps to make our city much more senior-friendly. We have retrofitted almost all our older HGB flats to bring lifts to every floor. And where we haven't been able to do so, we continue to seek possible solutions. And meanwhile, we'll help those with urgent mobility issues to move to a home with direct lift access. We also help to install features like grab bars, ramps, and slip-resistant flooring in seniors' flats at highly subsidized rates to make their flats more senior-friendly. And our agencies subsidize senior mobility devices allow them to get around, to meet their friends, to carry on day-to-day -day activities. We also want to help our seniors age in place, to stay engaged in the local communities that they are familiar with, without having to uproot to a totally new environment. So we are piloting a new type of flats, the community care apartments, which integrate senior-friendly housing with care services 
communal spaces and programs so that our seniors can continue living independently in a vibrant community while still getting the care that they may need with their daily activities. Similarly, integrated developments like Kampong Admiralty and this one on the slide in front of you, an upcoming one in UT, brings housing, medical, commercial and community facilities all together so that seniors can easily meet their different needs within that same building. Again, besides these infrastructural features, social and community support is vital. We're developing community networks for seniors by bringing together stakeholders in local communities, volunteers, welfare groups, government agencies and others to engage and support our seniors together. We are preparing our city in these ways and more so that together we can celebrate the blessings of more good years for our seniors and benefit from their wisdom, experience and guidance for many more. Now, as our people age and our nation matures, our city will also grow old. We will therefore need to make a special effort not just to develop new parts of our city, but also to upkeep the quality of our existing infrastructure. Many cities much older than us have learned hard lessons on the need for good city maintenance. The neglect of roads and highways may give rise to more accidents. Damage and leaking pipes could lead to declining water quality. Buildings that fall into disrepair become safety hazards or hotspots for crime. So we're working hard to guard against urban decay. We upgrade our HDB flats as they age to keep them in good condition through the HIP, a home improvement program. In fact, we'll do two rounds of HIP, highly subsidized, for each HDB flat. Once when they're around 30 years old, and a second time when they are about 60 to 70 years old. We've also rolled out a periodic facade inspection regime to regularly check building facades for any signs of degradation so that issues can be rectified quickly before incidents occur. And we'll continue to push the boundaries of facilities management and maintenance by exploring how to use more advanced technologies to take care of our buildings as they age, as well as integrated and aggregated facilities management which bundles different services across clusters of buildings together for better economies of scale. At the same time, for those older buildings that form an important part of our collective heritage, we will not only keep them in good condition for our future generations, but will also refresh them so that they remain vibrant and relevant through time. In this way, the future of our city remains connected with our past, with our memories. Finally, one evergreen challenge that we grapple with is how to make the most of our very limited land to cater to the many competing needs and growing needs that we've described as our society continues to progress and our aspirations evolve, grow and amplify. We need more space for housing. Demand has risen partly because of the eco-boomer generation who are the children of our baby boomers born in the 80s and 90s, who are now starting their families and seeking their own homes. But demand is driven partly also due to changes in social structures, aspirations, wants and needs. Smaller households, including more single-person households, and children and their parents preferring to live apart rather than in multi-generational homes. 
At the same time, we want more space for nature and greenery for respite and mental well-being. As more Singaporeans develop a greater appreciation for the outdoors, especially during this pandemic. And we need space for more healthcare facilities, cultural and recreational amenities, seniors' facilities, economic areas for new industry, laboratories for research and innovation, among many, many other demands. But we only have about 730 square kilometers of land. So we need to be very disciplined and creative to make room for all these different needs. Our challenge is very different from the challenge of other cities in much larger countries. So we have to coordinate tightly across agencies, carefully plan the different parts of our island to achieve the balanced mix of land uses. We have to plan long-term. We have a master plan to guide our development over the next 10 to 15 years, which we review every five years. And every 10 years, we update our long-term plan for the next 50 years and beyond. We employ a variety of strategies to maximize land use. We intensify our use of land, for instance, by building higher or, or by co-locating different facilities and stacking them on top of each other. We reclaim land where feasible and even use underground spaces guided by our underground master plan. And we redevelop and rejuvenate existing developments to free up land for newer and more high-intensity uses. Some of these will give us large pieces of land that will enable bold and major urban transformation, such as the Greater Southern Waterfront, the Jurong Lake District, and the Paya Lebar Air Base when it is relocated. As I said earlier, as a small city-state, we face land pressures more intensely than other cities. This is our burden to bear, but it is also our calling and our opportunity, and it pushes us to keep finding better ways to make the most of what we have. Climate change, societal polarization, population aging, city maintenance, tightening land use pressures. These are trends that we can anticipate for a city and a city-state, the known unknowns. But in an increasingly volatile and uncertain world, we also need to prepare for the unknown unknowns. COVID-19 is one example. As Minister Ong put it, it is a reset button, forcing us to rethink the way we do things. How we live, work, play, travel, see a doctor, in this new normal. Will we need so much office and retail space as more work and shop from home? Do our neighbourhoods need more community co-working areas? How can we make rush hour a thing of the past? Innovation is born out of crisis, and the pandemic is a chance for us to do things better and smarter as we design our future city. We need to prepare for different possibilities by planning for greater flexibility in our city. For instance, we may need to safeguard more land to stockpile and produce essential material during supply disruptions, or set aside flexible white spaces for emergency use. This may mean that we can't maximize all our available land now, but it will help us to build resilience for future challenges. Recognizing the many uncertainties we face, we will develop long-term plans that will preserve flexibility and optionality for the future. For instance, through our ongoing exercise, which we call the long-term plan review. 
these are some of the many things we're doing to try to prepare for the future of our city. If we put them together, what kind of Singapore might we see? We could see a city that celebrates diversity, where we find joy in our commonalities and make space for our differences, where we are brought closer together through common spaces that we build together. We could see a city that is more inclusive, designed for people with different needs and abilities, not as an afterthought or a retrofit, but from the outset with intentionality and heart. Schools, homes, streets and parks, with people-centred design based on lived experience. We could see a city in harmony with nature, not just decorated with gardens and landscapes, but living with nature as it is in our midst, in all its beauty and majesty. We could see a climate-ready city where sustainability becomes a way of life, and perhaps even going beyond a sustainable city that minimizes damage to the environment to a restorative one that heals the damage caused, and one day to a regenerative city, one that does more for the environment than it might take away. We could see a digitally enabled, globally connected city that also serves as home, not just connected, but a connector, a hub for trade in goods and services, but also digital flows and the exchange of skills and ideas. Yet through all our reinvention, we should also city, see a city rooted in its memories and its heritage, where our history will be chronicled not just in books, but also in our buildings and landscapes, which are not conserved as empty monuments, but given fresh leases of life, respectful of the memories of these buildings. We could see a society that cares even more, a close-knit community that uplifts one another, especially those who need more support. What do we need to achieve our vision of our future city? There are many things that we need to do, and you can have a very long laundry list. But I'll just spend the next few moments to highlight three important elements, among others. Trust, stewardship, and collective action. First, a community of trust. City planning involves hard decisions, balancing competing interests across time and space. There are no perfect solutions, and we will all need to make some compromises, including tough ones. In such situations, trust becomes key. When we share our views, do we trust that we will be heard? Do we trust that those who disagree with us love the city as much as we do, so that we can try to find common ground? And when decisions are made, do we trust that they are made in our best shared interests, considering all perspectives? Trust doesn't mean we always have to agree, but it means we must believe that despite our disagreements, we always have the interests of our city at heart. Fostering this takes hard work. There'll be stumbles along the way, and it only comes with building deep relationships over time. The second element that we need is stewardship. Our land, our resources, they're precious. We must steward them with care. This means thinking long-term because our city is not just for us, but for our children and their children to come. This is what our forefathers did for us. Their long-term vision gave us iconic features of our city, such as Changi Airport, Marina Bay, and our MRT networks, which took many years to, to, to fulfill and have stood us in good stead. 
Yet they also set aside swaths of land for us. We are using these for our bold urban transformation plans, which I spoke about a little earlier. As these plans are realized, they will create new and interesting spaces for the next generation, who will in turn pursue their own rejuvenation plans and shape the city in the vision that they aspire to. So let's take good care of our city and our environment today as stewards, so that future generations have space for their dreams too. The third and final element is collective action. Open conversations like the ones at this conference are important. Yet beyond discussion and ideation, let us also take action, roll up our sleeves, work together. And this is what the Singapore Together movement seeks to achieve. All of us have a part to play in the future of our society and city-state. So if I may put this question to all of us here, as we reflect on the insights from this conference, what is one thing that we will do to contribute to the city that we call home? How can we partner you? Let me conclude. We only have one city, and we must make the most of it now and in the future. There are significant challenges ahead of us, some of them existential. Climate change, the possible fragmentation of society, and potential future pandemics. But we have started preparing for the trends coming our way, and if we continue to work well together, bounded by trust, adopting a mantle of stewardship, and taking collective action, then I'm confident that we are better placed to achieve our vision for better Singapore. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to our dialogue. Thank you, Minister. We'll now start our question and answer session. Professor Tan Taiyong will be moderating this Q&A session. Professor Tan, please. Thank you. Thank you, Minister, for sharing with us your vision of, uh, a vision of the city of the future. Now, um, there have been, I've been receiving several questions, but before I turn to them, I, I want to ask you a broad question because it relates to um, what we saw in a clip uh, by Mr. Roger Ratnam and then your speech. Um, 50 years ago in 1972, he articulated the idea of a global, cities, global city. And it was driven essentially by an economic imperative. Singapore is to break through limitations of size and geography and connect with global cities to, in order for the new nation state to survive, thrive and survive. And to all intents and purposes, Singapore has succeeded in doing that through the embrace of technology, by being part of trading networks. Um, but as Singapore progresses as a global city-state, your talk focuses instead of making Singapore a very viable home, one that's livable, sustainable, and gives people a sense of well-being, and a sense of cultural and social identity, deep social bonding. So my question to you is that, as Singapore continues, and this is perhaps an economic imperative, to position itself as a global city-state, a global city, it also has to consider building a city that is home. Do you see an inherent tension in this, or are they two sides of the same coin? I think first and foremost, as a city-state, we have to be home. 
home first, and then aspiring to achieve all the uh, outcomes that we desire as a global city. And I would say that, and, and I'm in no position to second-guess what Mr. Rajaratnam meant when he made that very prescient speech, but when you pursue economic growth through being a global city, you're really thinking about the people. You want to be able to get the resources that the city needs to make this a home, to get the resources to provide for society, to provide jobs and a sense of dignity and self-worth through work, to provide resources for survival, for defence. And so everything we do, economic, defence, infrastructure, they all lead ultimately to home. And when I have my dialogues with my colleagues in the public service, I ask them what ministry they're from and which section of the public service they're from. And some say from, I'm from defense, I'm from you know, security agency, I'm, a, I'm an infrastructure agency, I'm an economic agency. And I say, at the end of it, what is it that you're pressing into service for? And ultimately, the answer is always one and the same. It's about home, it's about society, it's about people. And, and we're a we're a polity, right? We, we, the political city-state providing all the assurances and protections that a state must provide to its people. And so as we aspire to be a global city, we must first and foremost make the people of the city feel comfortable at home. And I would say it's not through cerebral action, but from the heart. Because when you say, I'm home, and you land after a long trip, a tough trip, tough work trip, when you land at Changi and you say, I'm home, it comes from the heart. The sense that I'm proud of this place, the memories are still there, they'll not be washed away. There's an emotional connection to this land, to its buildings, to its people, to its communities. And I feel able to unwind and relax when I'm home. And so ultimately, I think it's an emotional connection, a sense of well-being, a sense of um, affiliation, ownership, that gives us that firm foundation upon which to achieve our aspirations of being globally connected. And by being globally connected, you're really seeking to achieve the aspirations of our people. Thank, thank you, Minister. There are a few questions that concerns um, policy. So uh, I'll, I'll read out the, the top voted one. And this concerns the uh, accessibility of singles to uh, HDB housing. So over the last 10 years, the proportion of singles across all age groups rose in Singapore, in particular among those aged between 25 and 34. How should our housing policy adapt to this gradual change in the way family units have transformed? There's a related question that is more specifically referencing the Graydon Southern Waterfront Project. <laughs> There's possibilities for singles to have flats there. And maybe I'll just cluster this together because um, there's another question of um, how we can be more inclusive in our housing strategy to recognize different family structures uh, that have started to take root. So singles, LGBT families, uh, non-marital life partnerships, etc. So I guess this group that does not, uh, I guess, uh, conform to a traditional um, uh, stereotype or, or vision of families, how do you take care of this group of people in Singapore's housing plans? Yeah. So Singapore is unique in that the majority of people live in public housing. It has, it's been a real strength. It has enabled us to ensure affordability, accessibility, 
enable people to have a stake in the community in which they live, to own and not just to rent from somebody else the, the roof over your head. It has enabled us, through what people might see as rather intrusive policies, to secure the diversity, ethnic diversity of our neighbourhoods so that they become microcosms of Singapore, wherever you may go. And it's allowed us not just to fulfil the aspirations of the young, but also to help seniors monetize in their old age and fulfill their needs for retirement. But as I said, in 2018, we need to continue to evolve all our policies, bearing in mind that our society is never static. And so over the last few years, we've had to make major changes along the way, some major, some less so, uh, enhancing grants for singles. They used to get it if they lived with their parents. But we recognize that many of them also live near or desire to live near, to provide care. And many singles sacrifice their well-being, their possibilities of setting up their own families to care for their seniors as their brothers and sisters make their own homes and the burden then falls on their shoulders. So we've made adjustments along the way and even recognizing the challenges that single parent families face, both divorcees as well as unwed families, unwed parents, the challenges that they face bearing the burdens all by themselves. We've made changes to housing eligibility. In the last decade, we started by opening up public housing, subsidised public housing, uh, to singles. And you could see that although you made it available, there was huge demand. It was significantly oversubscribed. And it took many years before our housing campaign, our housing programme, could meet not just the needs of larger households and families, but also the aspirations of singles to own their homes. And with limitations in land and resources, you have to allocate and try to allocate in a way that meets needs. So even for married households, married couples, not all of them are eligible for public housing. We've had to put in criteria to secure the resources, to secure the homes for those who might need it more and need more support. So that is a change that evolves over time. And we are very mindful that as society changes, we'll have to continue to make adjustments along the way to all policies, including public housing policy. Now for prime living, prime area public housing, it's a new product. It's new. It's, we've just launched one in November last year. And they will not form the majority of our public housing uh, stock. We have lots of BTO flats that are coming up, 100,000 between uh, within this, these five years. And we have resale flats that are made available, made more affordable through grants. Uh, and for prime location housing, given the number of flats we're going to build at the, at the start, we've decided to ring fence both initial purchase as well as subsequent resale to one simple, crisp, clean criteria, BTO eligibility, which everyone understands. And the aim is to manage demand, especially for a new product, new policy, that already has quite challenging objectives that we seek to achieve. Ensure they remain affordable over time, but as I've said, we'll continue to adjust along the way as we gain more experience. Now, the conception that singles are entirely prevented from buying these brand new prime era flats at the, at the get-go as well as on resale is not entirely accurate. Right? If you say one person single living all by yourself, right. then of course, 
BTO eligibility does not allow you. But singles looking after parents, one or both, singles with their siblings, especially when parents are no longer around, and both remain single and want to care for each other, are also eligible. And in some of these prime locations, even the one in Rocho that you see, if you look at the map of all the HDB flats around there, there are many five-room, four-room, three-room and others that are available on the resale market that you can buy. But having said all that, housing policy needs to evolve. It has and will continue to do so. So following on the theme of inclusivity, there's a question uh, from uh, Professor Tan and Sir, and this is about rental flats. So he says, uh, being poor among other poor people may be experienced as more comfortable than being poor among the well-to-do. How do we ensure that mixing rental flats with sold flats would have the intended effect? And then a kind of related question is, how does, uh, what are the plans, uh, uh, how does the government intend to better support those in rental housing to finally purchase a HDB flat of their own? Prof Tan is, uh, is a deep researcher in this area, yeah. you know, sociology, ethnographic studies, and I'm very indebted to him for a lot of his learning that is shared with me and my colleagues. Um, this is an area which um, is always fraught with challenges. Some say, well, if you keep people in rental housing completely separate from the rest of community, then there isn't that mixing, there isn't that lived experience encountering people from all walks of life, from all socioeconomic status, living casually in the community, learning to relate to one another. And then you have areas of your city that become more gentrified, while others might take a downward spiral if you separate them and segregate them. On the other hand, there are concerns, as Prof Tan highlighted, that if you put them in the company of... of people they perceive as being more successful. Will it be a plus? Will it motivate them? Will it demotivate them? Will it be a, a fraud experience? I think time will tell. Having said that, this is not a brand new experiment. We already have rental flats within sold flats. Some rather old flats as well. And I've visited some of these uh, estates, visited the flats, spoken to the residents. Uh, and I would say the experience is mixed. Is mixed. It's not all one way. Not everyone welcomes it, but people also recognize that this is important for social mixing. And truth be told, when we were designing the PLH model and we talked about rental housing, I had some very strong views brought to my attention to say, better not do this. Not a wise thing to do. But you speak to different researchers, you speak to sociologists, you speak to social workers, you speak to uh, community developers, and they say that if you, if you do it well, if you program it well, infrastructure is just one enabling piece. So just living with people who may be of a different socio-economic status than you, uh, it, that's infrastructure design. But you program it well, you enable people to mix and intermingle, you provide the amenities for people to share and use together. Um, my belief and my faith is that I think that will, that will provide the kind of social discourse that we really need to foster proactively in a society where you might see the socioeconomic divide beginning to strain and pull apart. And on the second question that Prof Tan talked about, precisely why we are pushing for community link or comlink, 
um, there, was a, there was a pilot in Bedok South for some 800 families uh, where all the agencies and social work organisations got together, understood each and every family's circumstances, understood their fears, their hopes, their aspirations, worked out a progress plan for each of them in conversation with the families and worked collectively, cohesively in an integrated way to help to unlock the shackles that may stand in the way of these families as they aspire to progress, help to address some deep-seated challenges they encounter, including mindset and motivations, address policy barriers that may stand in the way of them doing better in life, and helping to integrate the support that they need. And so, I think the, the question shouldn't be, what do we need to do in order to help rental flat tenants move into home ownership? Because moving into home ownership is but one proxy of stability, self-reliance, and ultimately social mobility. And if you ask social workers, they'll tell you, never start off with the preconception that they must immediately move into home ownership. But start off by tackling the core issues that may impede them. And ultimately, when they reach a level of stability and self-reliance, and they aspire to home ownership, and we help them along the way. Yeah. So it's rental housing coming with the assurance of more integrated social support that we are seeking to achieve by redesigning our rental housing strategies. I'm mindful that there are questions from the floor, but just let me take one more question online then. I'm going to turn over to see whether there are questions from uh, people sitting here. And this question is from um, Kishore, Kishore Mabubani. And he says, or his question is, a great paradox surrounds Singapore. On the one hand, we are one of the world's most successful societies, yet instead of optimism, pessimism seems stronger among Singaporeans. How do we scrub out this pessimism? And this is now the top voted question <laughs> of the lot. Any question from Prof Kishore will be top voted <laughs> because of its prescience and its incisiveness. Um, yes, when you go on social media, when you talk to Singaporeans, and, you know, there's always the, the sense of worry, the sense of hesitation. But actually, if you talk to people, have deep conversations with them, there's hope, there's optimism. But there's a significant dose of realism about the challenges that a city-state faces, aspirations that people may have, and whether they can be assured to achieve them. And in that regard, I'm not sure whether studies have been made, but comparing the opportunities that people have today after going through an education system that's much more varied, diverse, and inclusive than it was in my generation and in generations well before ours. I think younger people today stand, are more well-equipped and should have a lot more confidence to face the challenges of today and tomorrow with the assurance that they have the skill sets and are well-placed to meet them. So I'd say that, yes, there might be some who are pessimistic, but there are many Singaporeans, including one, young ones we speak to, in the community, in schools, were tremendously optimistic about what they could achieve if they put their heart and mind at it. And it is imperative for all of us in this room, and I'm sure many of you are, acting as mentors, acting as teachers, acting as coaches, 
to help address those fears about the unknown and empower our young people, not, not through physical skill sets or just intellect, but fire up that imagination in them. Tell them what you've done. Tell them what they can do. And give them, most above all, the opportunity to roll up the sleeves, put things into action, and see success come along the way. And with that, successes, small ones at the beginning, they build that confidence to take the city well beyond our time. Thank you. Are there, are there any questions from the floor? I, I don't see anyone queuing up to ask. Oh, yes, there's one over there. Yes, please. Yes, sir. Can you, can you ask a question? We can't hear uh, you. Yeah, it's not on. Ah, oh, okay. sorry. Uh, th thank you, Chairman. Um, Minister, I would like to... Uh, I'm Asad Latif from IPS. Oh, Asad. Um, thank you. Uh, just a follow-up question to what uh, Professor, uh, um, Ambassador Kishok Mevani asked. Um, you know, Singapore is an excellent example, I think, of a supply-side city-state. And we have done very well along those lines. And uh, I, would, I certainly consider myself to be a beneficiary of this system. However, the, we have been successful in this regard when much of the region, and certainly the giants of China and India, were not quite what we are today. Now, as those uh, countries come up, their civilizations rise again, do you sense any kind of, um, of, uh, of uh, a feeling that uh, Singapore will become more of a demand-side city-state, but the demands will be made increasingly in terms of these new civilizational impulses. And what would that do to our domestic social fabric? Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Asad. Thank you. I think that's a very thoughtful question that interrogates Singapore's role over the decades as our region changes, as the people of Southeast Asia evolve and change and have a growing middle class, and most importantly, as Asian giants arise. And how do we as a small city-state, who in the 60s, an improbable nation, how do we remain nimble, flexible, structure our arrangements and relationships in order to not just remain relevant, but to to flourish and thrive as the geopolitical climate evolves. And, and that has got to do with, or that requires a number of things to, to come into play together. One, the skill sets, flexibility and resilience of our people. And as a government, our responsibility to, to ensure that our education system not just prepares them well for the workforce in Singapore and around the world, but also imbibes in our people that hunger and aspiration to learn all through life. The Skills Future movement seeks precisely to do that, so that we remain nimble, come what may, be able to pivot, to change, to pick up new skills, to pick ourselves up when we fall and stumble. And fall and stumble, we will along the way. So that's, that's imperative, because that's our only resource, whether supply side, demand side, our people 
our engines of growth, for society, for economy, and for our relevance to the world. The prescience of our founding fathers to push for bilingualism. When I was a child, it was, you know, it's, it was controversial, remains so, but it's enabled young Singaporeans the opportunity to work in the East and work in the West. Um, I, I met a, a young lady. Um, she's, she and her husband are struggling. They're a Malay family. Uh, and she came up to me and she said she wanted some help because her daughter is in PSLE. And she's, she needs some help with her Chinese. I said, wow, okay, what, what is she studying? She says she's studying Chinese and she learns Malay from the parents and grandparents. Um, but she wants her, her, her child to be trilingual. And she says, look, I want my child to be able, when he grows up, to operate in the region, and with Malay and English, he will. With the West, it's English, and with Chinese, connect, connecting to, to China. That hunger, that motivation, coming and asking, is there tuition, is there, are there classes? This final year, very important. The last five years, some support, but can we have even more support? And it, by the way, all, all three of my children are trilingual, my trilingual. And I think that, that was really, really humbling for me, very motivating and encouraging. So that's one, flexibility, nimbleness, and resilience of our people through that mindset that we adopt, that what we learn in school is never enough, always aspiring to pick up new things, that level of inquisitiveness will stand us in good stead. Second, our social political model continues to have some relevance to our giant Asian neighbours. And to also serve as a place, neutral, but able to communicate with both the East and the West. And I think at a time of rising competition of US, China, and of course India as another Asian giant, I wouldn't say confrontation, but competition rising, heating up. I think Singapore continues to play a relevant role. And our government, our corporates, our chambers need to continue to connect, connect more deeply with our region and with the larger countries. So we do things with both the US, we do things with China, we have projects with India. And we've made a big push to try to get our younger people to go out into Southeast Asia, to go out into the region, to connect with young people in Southeast Asia, to learn their language, to learn their culture. And I think that will put us in a better position, whether Assad is supply side, demand side. I think that gives us some strength as a nimble, flexible city-state. I think there's a, there's a question around table 12 or table 7. Yes, please. Okay, uh, thank you, Minister Lee, for the sharing just now. And I think that my question is actually really related to the previous question. So, my question is about how we're an increasingly globalised city-state. There's a lot of access to opportunities in other countries, but also the competition is now on a much more global scale. 
So we hold our education system in really high regard, but there seems to be a quite high occurrence of brain drain in Singapore, especially because people tend to cite our very competitive job industry or wanting to go to other countries for opportunities. So how do you think we could address this problem in the coming years? Since we want to keep up with global competition, but we also want to ensure that our students aren't uh, overly pressured by this global competition. And it seems like this competition is only set to increase in the coming years. So, Minister, before you answer, there are a few questions coming online also about uh, wanting the voices of youth to be heard in all these planning, because this is a question that relates to their future, what sort of society are we having, are we planning to have? There are a number of questions here about, well, what, how, how do the young have a say? How do, they, how do we get them to resonate with the kinds of plans that uh, the, the government is developing? And, you know, a broader question is participatory democracy, you know, uh, something that is useful as we plan for the, future, uh, the city of the future. So uh, we'll take that as a group, yeah. Maybe we can ask the uh, young lady for her name so that I can address her. Can, can we have your name? Uh, Sorry, I didn't catch your name earlier. Can, can someone pass her the bike again so that we can... Uh, uh, table 7, I think, yeah. Uh, hi, I'm Kim Ng from NJC. Kim. Thank you, Kim. I start off with the broader question that the Prof posed to me and then get into the area that you're talking about because it's a very important uh, issue for the well-being of our workforce, including our future workforce. And in a way, feeds into all these surveys we get about the happiness of our workforce, the contentment, stress levels, and their motivation to continue fighting on. But on young people and how they can get involved more deeply in understanding first and foremost the nature and character of our city-state, the trade-offs that we've had to make, have a say in where they want the equilibrium to be in time to come as they take over leadership of the city-state, we are providing, we have provided platforms. So participate on your own, bring your schoolmates along as part of your, uh, of your school's outreach efforts. For the long-term plan review, we've had deep conversations, we've had students join us, ask very reflective questions, ask difficult questions, seek to bring their voice to the table. And they're in the room, virtual room no doubt, uh, with with architects, with planners, with public officers, with the private sector, with entrepreneurs. And, and they're prepared to stand up, put up that Zoom hand and voice their opinion. And, and that is why in, in, in reply to what I, in my earlier reply to Prof Kishore, I, 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 when we engage young people, there is that sense of optimism. They're not, you, know, you give them the opportunity to speak, there is an optimism. Yes, of course, there's worry, there's concern about the future, but they're well-placed and they want to have a voice and they want to roll up the sleeves and have a part in the action. So long-term plan review is just one opportunity. Our green plan conversations that we want to lead into actual action on the ground. Start with small victories, run small projects on the ground, giving them the confidence to build up greater knowledge confidence in sustainability, in the urban environment, in conservation and so on. Join us in those conversations, but most importantly, 
participate, work together. So for example, I have many young people helping us with, uh, with biodiversity conservation. They don't just voice their aspirations, but we also empower them, we give them the tools, we enable them, we have mentors to guide them, to inspire them, to address their worries and concerns, and they go out in the field, going out into the community to do this work. Unsung heroes, but we should really be telling the stories of these young people who, 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 who hold the torch and actually do work on the ground. On your question, Kim, about what we need to do to prevent this brain drain, I think if this question was asked 30, 40 years ago, I think it's a familiar refrain. And that's got to do with our sense of balance and how as corporate leaders in this room, as heads of organizations, um, that we pay attention to the well-being of the people who work with us and work for us. It feeds into the whole narrative about emotional and mental well-being that for many decades, I think, has not been at the forefront of people's minds, whether in government, whether in the corporate world, whether in academia, that we do need to strike that balance for overall well-being and, and not wanting to come across as, as soft, but I think we do need to have earnest conversations about work-life balance and the intrusion that digital devices cause by bringing work right into your homes. In some countries, they've taken legislative measures. In France, I understand there's legislation as to when bosses can send emails, when you can check your work. But it really is a harbinger of the impact of technology bringing work untrammeled into people's homes and causing burnout. So I think that is something that government, industry, and employers as well as NGOs need to come together to address. So, so I'll come to that in, in just one minute, but on the theme of, of young people, there's a question from uh, Zainal Abedin Rashid. Uh, it's not about young people on the receiving end of policies, but young people who eventually will be leaders of Singapore. So his question is, how do we ensure that the younger and future political leaders understand the changing complexities of multi-racial, multi-religious Singapore? I look to all of us here in this room, uh, people with uh, lots of experience, uh, people with lots of life experiences, to, to coach, to mentor. We're pushing for a strong mentoring alliance you know, for young people. They are looking to, to older Singaporeans for mentorship, for guidance, for advice for things that are not necessarily taught in the classrooms. I think that's important because it is our responsibility as a steward to pass on a lot of that learning, a lot of the emotion, a lot of the instinct, not necessarily just intellectual decision-making power, but also that instinct, that drive, and the qualities that, made, that allowed our earlier generations to make Singapore what it is today. I think there is no substitute for all of us in this room and beyond to be teachers, mentors, and coaches of our young. And I've had many conversations where young people come up to me and say, can, you know, can, can, I, can you spend a few moments with me, ask you some questions, tell me some stories, tell me how you do, do things, and I like to bounce some ideas off you. I think just spare that time for, for
for younger Singaporeans in the workplace, in your halls of residence, in universities and IHLs, and in the community as well? Okay, can I take that question now? Sorry to keep you waiting. Please introduce yourself first. Hi, uh, good, good afternoon. My name is Devin from Nanyang Polytechnic. All right, um, Minister, in your remarks, you talked about the issue of climate change and what Singapore is doing locally uh, to mitigate the effects of climate change. Now, we know that climate change is a global issue that will have both social and economic repercussions. For example, damaged infrastructure, heat-related mortality, and even scarcity of food and water. Given Singapore's position as a global city, as well as its need to protect its own citizens from the harms of climate change, what role can Singapore play on the world stage to foster discourse and action from other countries so that these social and economic harms of climate change can be mitigated in Singapore? Thank you. I think David's question is, is, a, is a clear example of how our young people aspire not just to do well for Singapore, but to make a contribution globally as well. <clears throat> and many in this hall have helped Singapore punch above our weight. And I'm sure that uh, if you speak to Dick, to, to David, you'll be in a good position to help to address some of the questions he's raised. But, but David, we are, a, we are a very small city-state. But we've been able to participate actively and earnestly in all the climate conferences, bearing in mind our inherent limitations, but prepared to stretch our ambition to ensure that our city-state has a fighting chance of survival with the onslaught of climate change. But this is one challenge, just like the pandemic, one in which no one succeeds if everyone doesn't fight. No one can survive if everyone doesn't fight for survival. Just like the need to vaccinate the world before you put an end to this pandemic. Climate change requires global collective action for which political will is needed in countries big and small. Countries big and small. And we see leaders of big and small countries paying a lot more attention because their people are paying a lot of attention. They're feeling the effects of climate change on agriculture, on livelihoods, on food security, water security, the economic distress it, it causes, and pushing for change. But Singapore has played a part in the negotiations. We have recently, my colleague Grace Fu and her colleagues participated in some of the um, meetings at COP26 to discuss some of the challenges that remain, and there are many pursuant to um, carbon uh, credits and how they should be interpreted. I believe it's Article 6. And we should continue to play our part. We have agencies in government working with research institutes in our IHLs, including in NUS and NTU. And we have very participatory NGOs who work together, Singapore-style, to address climate change locally but also present some solutions which other countries might want to consider globally as well, in the built environment, uh, in community, 
both social and infrastructural, as you say, David. And for some of these conferences, our agencies bring along young people, bring them along to, to have their say, bring them along to experience the politics of international organizations and platforms, and give them the opportunity to bring those experiences back home. Even for CBD, Convention for Biodiversity, I asked my colleagues in NPARCs, bring our young people along, whether they're from NGO or IHL, bring them along to see how these things are discussed internationally. Come back and share your reflections with us. Give us fresh perspective, because we've been attending these meetings year after year. But bring your fresh perspective, your youth voice, and go and share with, your, your, with other young people in Singapore. And come and tell us collectively what more you'd like to do and how we can partner you to achieve that. Okay. Um, I'll take the last question from the floor. We're running a bit out of time. So last question, then I'm going back to a few more online questions. Yes. Good afternoon. I'm Angelina from NUS High. Thank you, Minister, for the insightful sharing. To add on to David's question about climate change, there was a sentiment brought up during the climate panel about Singapore becoming a leader in the region for climate and green innovations. To do this, and for others to be more receptive, we need to earn the respect of other nations in these fields. Do you think Singapore has done well to earn this respect? Thank you, Angelina. It's important to have headline commitments, but it's even more important to make sure your policy and your operations allow you to achieve those stated goals. And in Singapore, we often get criticised, you know, you don't sign on to this agreement, that agreement, and often it's because this line or that line, we have difficulty complying immediately, but give us some time, we will achieve it. And we may not be the first to sign on to everything. So, the same for climate. When we make commitments, better be sure you can deliver on them, have the, not just the political will and longevity to see it through, but also have the resources, mechanisms and policies on your own as government and in partnership with the private sector and the community to be able to see it through. And, and as part of the IMCCC, I see that. We, we measure it scrupulously. We look at each line of item and make sure that we are able to comply with our commitments. So Angelina, I think that is something that's rather understated, but I like you and other young people in Singapore to know that we have to make sure that what, when we make promises in the international arena, especially on something as important as climate change, that we have the willpower to see it through. And so the Green Plan is, is not an advertising campaign. It seeks to galvanise policymakers private sector, IHLs, communities. No one is too insignificant to play a part. And to be able to achieve the kinds of goals that we need to meet in order to tackle this existential challenge that we and our children and our grandchildren face requires not just a policy solution or an infrastructure solution in the form of polders or drains or a whole transition in our economy and the the economic mix that we have, or the kinds of jobs that we do, a whole change in our way of life. How we use energy, conserve it, use water, conserve it. And it requires a total change. 
And so Singapore, in decades to come, just the green plan alone, the transformation, if we see it through, will see life change quite significantly. And that is what is needed to secure your future, Angelina, and that of your children and your grandchildren. Okay, I'm going to pose a final set of questions and I'm clustering them for, for the Minister. We are running out of time. And this concerns physical spaces in Singapore. So a lot of us now interact on a digital space. Now, how do we convert that digital engagement to the physical community that we are all in? That's one, set, one, one dimension. Two, um, with COVID and the closing of physical spaces, you know, that has had an impact on the well-being of people. How do we deal with this sort of continuing isolation, alienation of people, especially with limited access to physical spaces? Or how do we redesign physical spaces for that? And third, and this concerns uh, the, the multi-racial element, you know, our planning and usage of space has not effectively achieved, and this is from uh, Alami, Alami Musa, has not effectively achieved the interracial mixing, and hence uh, we need to really review this, whether we are integrating in a, in a productive way. So can we be bold enough to dismantle old paradigms like Kelang Sarai, Little India, Chinatown enclaves? So, so it's about physical spaces and how do we how can we envisage the use of these physical spaces going forward? Thank you. Very thoughtful question. Physical spaces, city design, precinct design are very important contributors that enable social intercourse to take place. They enable, but in and of themselves, they do not cause these interactions to happen. They enable, but so it's necessary, but not sufficient. Necessary but not sufficient. So policies like the EIP have got rough edges, but Singaporeans generation after generation recognise that it has enabled our estates to be microcosms reflective of the ethnic diversity of Singapore. And this is important because if you don't live together, you don't meet each other in the lift, in the corridor, in the void decks, in the markets, in the shops, or you, feel, you see fewer of Singaporeans of different ethnic communities, then I think your, your lived experience will inform a lot of our thoughts, emotions, and may feed into prejudices because we characterise what we do not see, who do we do not meet. And so physical spaces are important and the policies that foster the diversity in those physical spaces are important. Um, HDB design, common spaces, pavilions, seating areas, play areas are intended to be open and inclusive. Increasingly, we are putting in inclusive playgrounds for differently abled Singaporeans and their children, uh, therapeutic gardens in the community to enable people to come out and mix whatever their abilities. Uh, these are important infrastructural designs, but not in and of themselves sufficient, and therefore, both the policies and the active social programming and some of this active social programming can be official, like what we do in PA, what we do in our uh, uh, different community groups, but can also be ground up. People coming together, making use of the shared spaces that we've provided in order to enable Singaporeans with different backgrounds, faiths, ethnicity to come together and intermingle. Different ages as well to come and interact. So I think that, that I think is that secret sauce that enables these spaces physical spaces to serve the intended purpose. 
You know, a lot of uh, BTOs, before people move in, and in fact, way after they move in, they are connected digitally. They have a lot of WhatsApp group for this precinct, that precinct. And the neighbours get to know each other even before they move in. And they would uh, do group buys, you know, they would share uh, contacts of someone who can do the curtains, someone who can do the flooring, someone who's very good at uh, dealing with the, 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 the renovation of toilets and this and that. And it's become a community and, and, and the digitals, digital platforms help to enable some of these communities to form. But the most successful ones actually convert that digital connectivity into real-world physical interactions, friendships. And it's in those estates where people take that next step forward. I know all of you on WhatsApp or Telegram, now we are going to turn that into real tangible friendships where neighbourliness can be felt, can be eaten sometimes when you share your food. And in those estates, you see some of these disputes. You don't see these disputes that you see in other communities because they've fostered those kinds of community bonds. And, and to the point about whether we should take bold steps to dismantle some of our cultural icons like Yelang Sarai, Chinatown, I would, say, I would say this. I would say that these places have an important part linking us to the complexity of identity in every Singaporean. We have a national identity, we have a personal identity that could be based on our ethnicity, language, our food, our culture, our practices, our faith. There are many sub-identities that make us whole. And rather than have a homo homo homogeneity enforced upon us through the dismantling of these cultural ballasts, I think preserve them, enliven them, enrich them, restore them. And that will give Singaporeans that assuredness, that confidence, that link to the past, that's so important for every society to know where they came from, to know where their parents and forefathers came from, and to know that their sub-identities that are part and parcel of this rich flavour of being Singaporean is not submerged, whether through national policy or through infrastructure design. Thank you. Thank you very much, Minister. I'm afraid that's all the time we have. Uh, there are still a few more questions which I'm afraid I cannot take up because um, we've run out of time, but these are all, all very important questions. Uh, they have questions related to waiting time for BTO, waste disposal, and that sort of thing. I'm sure there are other forums where you can actually um, get answers uh, from the Minister or the Ministry. So it leaves me now to uh, invite all of you to join me to thank uh, the Minister for his uh, very insightful and rich uh, uh, speech and also taking the range of questions uh, with such uh, candor and also with uh, the kinds of insights that he's able to share. Thank you very much, Thank Minister. you, Prof, and I thank you all for your very insightful questions. Thank you. And Taiyong, I, I think I'll just give some closing remarks, but you can, you can go down. There was a story in today's um, papers about how the pandemic has not resulted in less work. Working from home has meant people doing more work, uh, proportionately far more work than they used to. And it's no different um, organizing uh, Singapore perspectives. 
As a result of, um, of the pandemic, we went virtual, and a one-day event has now stretched into a four-day event, uh, three days online and one day um, uh, in situ um, here, which is also a, 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 a hybrid event because there are about 300, 400 people uh, who have been um, tuning in from online. Um, and so the amount of work that's gone into preparing this year's conference and last year's conference has actually not doubled, probably tripled and quadrupled. So I owe a great deal of thanks uh, to the IPS staff uh, who worked very hard to put this together, beginning with uh, JJ Wu, our principal research fellow, and Harry Tan, who curated. Um, spent countless hours um, contacting people from all over the world and persuading them and some arm twisting um, to arrange for them to, to participate in this conference and arrange for all the videos that uh, you have been seeing. And I'm also very grateful to IPS um, uh, uh, staff, admin staff, uh, some of you here, including Kishore, who used to be dean of LKY School, would know that there is no better admin staff anywhere in the university system. Uh, <laughs> So, I mean, I, I really do mean it. Actually, they are, they are excellent. Um, uh, beginning with Siling um, um, uh, and Zahida and Karin, who organized the event. Um, Derwey and Jasmine, I don't know where they are, who took care of the, coordinated the online space together with this uh, hybrid and did the AV system. Um, uh, the media team, Kaisin and um, Minxian, and, um, and and not least, the fundraising team, Hansen and uh, Joanna, and finally, of course, the people who very generously donated um, to, um, uh, to IPS and Singapore Perspectives. I might mention in particular um, um, Nian Kongsi that uh, has been very generous to us, uh, GIC, Tamasic, uh, the, the Chandrai Group, OUE, and Pontiac Land, and of course, everybody else uh, listed there. Um, I hope next year we will be able to have a full uh, conference in situ. Um, and um, I think, you know, um, we are missing something. It's good to have at least a partially physical event, but we have not been able to cross barriers and we've all been restricted to our tables. I don't think we have had uh, safe, uh, safe management ambassadors moving around, but, you know, um, if they have, they would probably have shushed you away uh, from moving from your seat. Um, hopefully, uh, as I said, we will have a full-blown SP next, next year. I don't know whether we will give up on our virtual sessions, perhaps not, uh, because we have learned that, you know, actually uh, it does value add uh, and it does, uh, uh, does bring together a larger group of people covering a broader uh, field of, um, um, uh, a broader, broader range of subjects. I hesitate uh, to say this. I'm sure my um, uh, fellow research fellows in IPS would, uh, would uh, be chagrined, uh, but I would perhaps announce in advance that next year's theme is going to be about work. So thank you. Thank you very much for attending uh, to this, uh, this, this, um, uh, today's uh, conference. Thank you very much.